morning. Be reading from uh, Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 11 through to chapter 6 from the NIV. So, if you're following. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, internal judgment, and God permitting we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless as is, and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was, be, what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which, is, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered 
on our behalf, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Kai, for reading that so well. Uh, good morning, everyone. I always notice that when Alex says good morning, he always gets a much nicer... No, no, that's, that's OK. <laughs> I don't take that personally at all. They get better, get better, says Alex. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have in front of us this morning an extremely profound passage of Scripture. Uh, it is one of the more deeply challenging parts of God's Word, and it is also one of the more uh, comforting part of God's Word. And we see that these verses sit side by side. And I think it's particularly challenging, particularly that, that kind of first two-thirds, for at least three reasons. Firstly, we are deeply aware of the seriousness of the warning that the author to the Hebrews gives. He says very clearly, it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Uh, that's one of, uh, by the way, uh, three, the third warning in five big warnings that happen throughout the letter to the Hebrews. And we feel the weight of that. I think secondly, too, that raises kind of big theological questions as well. How do we reconcile what the teaching is here with other parts of the Scriptures? What does it teach us about the divine sovereignty of God and how that interplays with human responsibility. The doctrine of election and human free will, these are kind of big and challenging and complicated issues. I think thirdly and potentially the most uh, difficult challenge is that this is a deeply pastoral issue. Uh, if you're like me, you may well have family and friends who you deeply love and care for, who have previously declared their faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've even prayed together. You've opened God's word together. You've sung in church together. But yet these people sadly no longer profess to follow Christ. What are these verses saying? And so I want to acknowledge that as we begin this morning, we are looking at some serious words. And if you would like to discuss and pray further, our staff would be more than happy to sit with you and to pray and to hear. And just to acknowledge that this is deeply challenging for at least those three reasons. And so as we look at this part of God's word together, we need to approach God's word with humility and gentleness to others. We need to understand what the author of the Hebrews is actually trying to teach us here. Now, more broadly, of course, the letter of the Hebrews was written uh, to a bunch of Christians uh, as a way of encouraging them uh, as they face challenges, <clears throat> pardon me, and persecutions. And the author says, look, look, don't drift. Don't walk away from Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus above all things because Jesus is better than all things and hence our very brief title for Hebrews, better. That's the tweetable uh, sort of summary of the whole book. 
And what we'll find as, we, as we've gone through the letter is the author does two main things. He will comfort those who feel anxious. We have that particularly in the second half of our passage today. But at the same time, he will challenge those who feel complacent. So he offers both comfort and challenge. Why? Because he wants us to keep looking to Jesus above all things. And we feel the weight of that particular challenge in these verses. Um, verses five, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, we can see this is directly pointed at those who are particularly complacent, those who are spiritually lazy. Verse 11, we have much to say about this. He's talking just about that bit he's spoken about as Jesus is the high priest. He's already mentioned that before. And he's going to say more uh, as we continue to chapter 7. But it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand, he writes. I literally says there, uh, it's because you've become lazy of hearing, of understanding. Uh, they're not stupid. They're not just tired and exhausted from a, a big week, no. They are spiritually lazy. It's where we get the word slug from, sluggard. They're spiritual sluggards. Uh, by the way, it's the same word in 6 verse 12 where it says overtly, we do not want you to become lazy. And so I particularly want to focus this morning on uh, 5.11 to 6.12. Uh, by the way, uh, there's so much in this text that it's impossible to give a, a, a kind of overview that would be, I think, uh, of help. And I particularly recognise the seriousness of the verses we're looking at in the front section. Uh, verses 13 to 20 are a whole other sermon. I've written a sermon on those verses, so if you're really keen for part two, come and chat with me. Well, we, can, we, can, we can work through it. But I want to focus particularly on five... Uh, 11 to 612 where the author says first look lazy Christians don't grow spiritually in fact they regress and that's 511 to 63 then we have that very serious warning that lazy Christians are actually in danger of great spiritual peril that's 6 verses 4 to 8 and then in towards the end of chapter 6, from 6, 9 onwards, he says, look, therefore be diligent and keep trusting and looking to Jesus. That's, that's the response to these challenges. That's how we move on from being lazy. That's how we grow. So let's look at those, uh, those three headings. Firstly, lazy Christians do not grow spiritually. The problem with that, it seems many of the Christians in this church is... They're not just not growing, they are going backwards. They're getting more and more immature. And notice that he calls them babies. Now, I love babies, and I always think babies are cute and cuddly and, you know, they're chubby little cheeks. Uh, that is, this is not meant to be a compliment. <laughs> He's not saying what lovely, cute, chubby cheeks you have. He's saying, look, you're a bunch of babies. It's actually quite a firm rebuke. These are grown women and men. And he says, look, you're actually not as smart as you think you are. You're actually babies. In fact, at this time he says in, in verse 12, you actually ought to be the teachers. You ought to be teaching people. But you need someone to teach you again the elemental truths of, God word, of God's word. 
You've forgotten your ABCs. Forget reading Descartes and Kant and great philosophers. Back to Sesame Street for you. You need milk, not solid food, he says. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about, uh, about righteousness. He's saying, time to grow up. And in verse 14, he actually very helpfully then outlines, well, this is how you do it. He says, this is what solid food is. He says, solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. So he highlights three things about, about what it means to grow maturity. Notice first that if you want to grow as a Christian in your spiritual maturity, you need to have consistency of practice, of discipline, by constant use. Uh, mature Christians are not lazy, they're not haphazard, are not winging it. They have regular spiritual habits. They help them focus on Jesus. They're committed, not just when it suits or when they kind of get around to it, no, by constant use. And second, who notice that as the writer here encourages us, if you want to grow as a Christian, you need actually intentionality. They have trained themselves. They've trained, the word there is to train like an athlete. In other words, you focus on the things that improve your performance, the diet and the right exercise to, to help you grow. Like if you're trained to be a world-class netballer, swimming laps, as wonderful as it is, probably won't help you. Where's the intentionality in your spiritual life? I heard a great phrase, which is, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. Practice makes permanent. In other words, as you develop habits, they will sustain you and grow you. And so if you fall into bad habits, you will keep falling into bad habits. So you have to be intentional and you have to be constant. And so the question, of course, for us is, look, well, what spiritual disciplines are you focusing on? as you're seeking to grow, I hope, in following Jesus. Just kind of vibing it as you go along, it's not going to work. And notice too, the outcome here is growing in godly wisdom. He says that the result is that they can distinguish between good and evil. In other words, spiritual maturity is, is not just a feeling within itself. There's actually a practical outcome. As, as you grow closer to God, as you feel his presence more and more, as you become aware of his glory, what do you do? You turn away from sin and turn, and turn to God. It has a practical outworking. You distinguish between good and evil. You, you learn how to love God more and love your neighbor more and put to death your own sins. So what's your plan? This is the implication that, that the author of the Hebrews is saying. What is your plan to grow? Are you consistent? Are you focused? Are you seeking to have godly wisdom that helps you to sin less and love God and your neighbor more? Because it's time to grow up, he says. That's his first point. Which is quite a serious point, by the way, and sometimes we, we miss that because the next bit is so confronting. But it's time to grow up, says the author to the Hebrews. Hebrews. 
Well, secondly, we see that lazy Christians are in serious spiritual danger. And this is where we come to the the, the very challenging part in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. It is a powerful warning, isn't it? We see four things particularly about these people who have fallen away. For whose, who have, who have, who have. We have, they're ones who have been enlightened. Uh, the word there means literally uh, to shine, to give, unsurprisingly, give light to. It's where we get the word photon from and photography and all those things. And, and what I think he's saying here is they've been enlightened to see who Jesus is, who is referred to as the light of the world. They've tasted the heavenly gift. And by the way, tasted means more than sampled. Do you know how you go to Brunetti's and you can get a sample of all the gelato? And if you're very smart, you can sample all of them and you're full. You just have a little spoon, right? Uh, The word actually means more than just a little, kind of little taste on a little spoon. It actually means to experience something cognitively and emotionally. So kind of really genuinely experienced it. To come to know something. Now, it's not entirely clear what what the author means by heavenly gift. Uh, It could potentially refer to baptism, uh, maybe communion, because it talks about tasting, perhaps. Uh, Maybe it's another way to refer to the Holy Spirit. But what we know is it's a blessing from God that they've experienced. It's a heavenly gift. Or thirdly, we read, these are people who have shared in the Holy Spirit. That is a deeply profound statement. They have experienced something of God's Spirit, truly. And fourthly, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. They've read the Scriptures and seen its beauty and its power and its transforming nature. And I I think when he's talking about the powers of the coming age, it's speaking about the miracles that surrounded the coming of the Messiah. They've seen God work in powerful ways. In other words, here are people who would seem to have all the blessings of the Christian life. Yet it says, it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. So what's going on? Well, that little phrase there, little uh, little word falling away or fallen away, uh, it literally means to fall beside or uh, it kind of means to to go astray, to miss to step away from. Uh, interestingly, in Luke 10:18, it's the same root word where Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, we need to be very careful that we don't read too much into that because the word fall is also used in other contexts where it's just to do with gravity, things falling. And so let me say four things about this warning. Uh, first thing... It is not a unique warning. Now what I mean by that is there are many, many places in Scripture which have overt warnings about God's people falling away. For example, uh, one that I found this week which was quite interesting was uh, Ezekiel 18 
21 to 32. And what's really interesting about Ezekiel 18 is that the way it's structured very closely maps to the way uh, Hebrew 6 is structured. There are very similar words and, and phrases. Uh, Ezekiel writes uh, in 18 uh, verse 23, uh, it's God speaking here, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I'm not pleased when they turn from the, uh, would I not be pleased when they turn away from their ways and live? But if a righteous man turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things that a wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things a person has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of. Literally, it says, because of their falling away. And because of their sins they have committed, they will die. Very confronting passage. In the New Testament, Mark 4, Jesus has a very famous parable about the sower and the seeds. There are seeds that fall on shallow ground. There are seeds that are choked by weeds. And in both cases, there's initial growth and at life. But they both fail. Uh, Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, I raise this point uh, for two reasons. Firstly, it's not as if, if we kind of got rid of this part of Hebrews 6, we could kind of avoid this question. And secondly, we, need to, we actually wrestle with this question more broadly uh, as Christians. It's not just unique to chapter 6 of Hebrews. It's a warning all the way through Scripture. Um, secondly, I want to say that this warning is something more than just sinning or even potentially denying Jesus. It's more than that. Uh, one of the great passages about sin and forgiveness, which we often use in church, is 1 John 1, where John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, there is genuine forgiveness for sin when we sin. It can't just be sin. In fact, part of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us is, forgive us our sins, which implies, of course, we have sins that need forgiving. And in all four Gospels, we read of the Apostle Peter denying Christ, uh, out loud, by the way, in front of other people, not once, not twice, but three times. Three times publicly denies Christ. In fact, it says in Matthew 26, he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them that he didn't know Jesus. That's a pretty serious denial of Christ, isn't it? But what's the outcome? Peter is graciously restored. Three times Jesus restores him in this beautiful little section. 
Now, why is this important? Uh, the danger here is you may fear that you are impossible to forgive. And they're carrying guilt uh, around or shame around something that your sin is too great. And therefore, there is no chance of forgiveness at all. And so what I want to say is, brother or sister, if that is you, take comfort. A deep awareness of your own sin and guilt, a deep awareness of your desperate need of forgiveness, that's a sign that God is at work in you. That God's Spirit is prompting you. If someone who is, is repentant and wants to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is not who the author of, of the Hebrews is describing in these verses. If that is you, take comfort. The open arms of God's grace are there. Your sins are forgiven. It's the picture of the prodigal son. Jesus' own parable. A man who disowns his father, works with pigs, which in a Jewish context, right? That's it's like working with Sydney ciders. It's really, really bad, right? And when he returns repentant, expecting to be a slave, what's the outcome? He, he's not just not a slave. His father runs to him in a culture where great men would never run to anybody, let alone a scumbag son. If you are fearful of your own forgiveness, brother and sister, take heart. These verses are not directed at you. God welcomes you, in fact, runs to you with open arms. Well, thirdly, we need to take this warning seriously. What I believe the author of the Hebrews has in mind when he speaks of falling away is nothing less than a conscious, deliberate, and persistent abandonment of Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. In other words, it involves nothing less than blatant apostasy from the living God. See, God has promised to forgive all who truly repent, but both Scripture and experience alike warn us that it is possible for human beings to arrive at a state of hardened life where they are so hardened that they can no longer repent. And by the way, Jesus himself said something very similar in Luke 12, verse 10. He said, when anyone, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Notice too that the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned very much intentionally, I think, in the list of the who haves tasted the Holy Spirit, a, a, a partnership with the Holy Spirit. And I think that there's, a, there, there's, a, there's something very similar going on. And I think the reason why falling away, or as Jesus often puts it here, I think blaspheming against the Holy Spirit puts you beyond repentance and therefore beyond forgiveness is because the Holy Spirit plays a unique role in our salvation. See, part of the Spirit's work is to open our eyes and convict us of sin 
So we are brought to repentance. You can't be brought to repentance unless you think you have something that needs to be repented from. If I haven't sinned, why would I need repentance? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, brings us to repentance, unites us with Christ that we may be forgiven. And when we sin, there's still hope that the Spirit works in us, humbles us, enlightens our heart to, to sin and leads us to repentance. That's the Spirit's work. That's why we confess sin at, at church each week, recognising the Spirit's work in our life. But if we taste and see the power of the Holy Spirit and the goodness of God's Word, and we reject that Word and that work as complete rubbish with disdain, we are being warned that we are shutting off ourselves from the only one who can bring us to repentance. And so we are shutting ourselves off from forgiveness. So what I'm trying to say here is that I believe that falling away and the blasphemy, uh, falling away and the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit are similar in that they are acts of resistance that belittle the Holy Spirit so grievously that it withdraws its convicting spirit, its convicting power. And therefore, we do not repent and we're forgiven. As verse 6, 6 puts it, it is as if they're crucifying the Son of God over, uh, all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It's upholding Jesus. It's saying, look, no longer seeing the cross as a means of salvation, but instead seeing the cross as a means of pure humiliation for the scum of the earth. That's your view of Jesus. No longer saviour, but scum. And we need to be honest, this is a terrible picture. And it can't be turned down. There's not, it's kind of, we'd love to say, oh, he didn't really mean it. We must feel the weight of the warning. We must feel the weight of the warning and take it seriously. And this leads to, to my fourth point. We need to understand that this is at its heart a pastoral warning, not a theological treatise or statement or argument. The author is not trying to, to resolve a, a complex theological tension about the divine sovereignty of God and the nature of election and our, our own human sin and ability to fall away. The response is not, thank you, author of the Hebrews, I'm now confused at a deeper level around the nature of the doctrine of election. Now, you may well be, by the way, I'm not suggesting that's not an outcome, that's not the purpose, though. It's what we say when you learn good doctrine. You get confused, but at a deeper level. As if we can ever plumb the depths of God. <laughs> now, the response is this. Do you hear the seriousness of the warning? That's the response that, that we are encouraged to hear. Don't be lazy. Know Jesus is your hope. Live it out. Seek people to imitate. Keep Christ above all things. That's the response we're called to make. It's really clear. Look, land that drinks, uh, as it goes on, uh, in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those who are farmed, receives a blessing from God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed, in the end it will be burned. 
He's saying, take your spiritual maturity serious. Seriously. Don't drift. Don't play with sin. So what about then our family and friends who we love who have walked away from Jesus? Because I feel this and I know many of us feel this tension. Well, let me say this. I don't know their final standing before God and you don't know their final standing before God. And so we need to let God be God. Only he knows the true state of people's hearts. He knows their ultimate destiny. destiny. And as we're told in 6.10, God is not unjust. God is not unjust. Because we know that some people who turn away from God, turn away from Christ do ultimately turn back. We've got the example of Peter for crying out loud. Three times publicly calling curses upon himself. And so can I encourage you, pray to God. He is not unjust. He is merciful. And he is loving. Pray for family. Pray for friends, knowing that God's mercy and love and power are sovereign. He longs for all to come to salvation and be uh, lovingly restored. So pray to the God who is just. Well, the third section we're looking at this morning is from 6, verses 9 to 12, where the author turns it around and gives us uh, a positive encouragement. Therefore, he says, be diligent and keep trusting Jesus. Put your hope in him. We'll see this word hope is used a few times, actually, throughout the whole rest of the chapter. Notice the author of the Hebrews doesn't actually believe that the Hebrews are actually in the category of falling away. Did you notice in in verse 9? It says, look, even though we speak of this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Things that have to do with salvation. Nonetheless, says, your salvation, you know, you're in Christ. Nonetheless, don't slack off now, he's saying. Look at verse 11, what he says that they should do. Verse 11, such a great little verse. We want each of you, in other words, everybody, not just the ministers or the Bible study leaders or doing, everybody to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may become fully realized. Be diligent so your hope may become fully realized Therefore, do not become lazy, he says in the next verse. In other words, diligence and laziness are kind of either side. The opposite to being lazy is to being diligent. It's 5 verse 14, taking sin and holiness seriously. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. 
faith and patience. And notice too, there's just a little line there. We are to imitate others. In other words, our diligence is not just for our own hope, it is for the benefit of others. That is, being a Christian is a team sport. It's the body of Christ. And so we seek to be diligent for the benefit of others. Now, I wonder whether this is something you've thought about. You may have been a Christian for a while. You may have been coming, as Peter Adams says, to St. Jude since 1843, which can't be true because St. Jude's didn't exist in 1843, even if Peter Adam did. I'm not saying he did. That's his words. And who am I to question Peter Adam? Do you realise that you are a role model for others to to, to emulate, to imitate? That That is a responsibility for those of you who have been Christians for a while. You are not, not, you don't get to choose, you have become a role model in the, in the body of Christ. We have church elders, and what I mean by that is mature women and men in Christ, you have a responsibility, not just for yourself, but for younger Christians, both in age, but also in how many years they've been a Christian. Do you realise that's your responsibility? Not just to be diligent for yourself, to watch your life and doctrine closely so that others look at you and say, I've always wanted to know what it's like to be a Christian for 20 years. Who can I look at? And we have a whole lot of younger Christians, both at Uni Church here and at 4pm, who are longing to be mentored and have role models of Christians who've, who've been down the path and worn the, got the T-shirt now, so to speak. Do you see that as your responsibility? Diligence, not just for you, but so that others can imitate. And the result of all this diligence, this intergenerational diligence, is that our hope is fully realised, completed, a full assurance of hope. And this is why I kind of love the way he ends. We have this really big challenge, but he then wants to draw us back to hope. See, in the midst of all these challenges and warnings, the comfort is you can know for certain that your hope in Jesus is secure. Why? Well, he says in 6, uh, 19, I know I said I wouldn't preach the whole thing, so I'm just going to take two verses. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Why do you need an anchor if you're sailing or in a ship? Because the ocean isn't always flat, right? It'll it'll push your boat somewhere unsafe. So the anchor keeps you firm. Doesn't deny storms, but it keeps you firm and secure. And our anchor has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, one of the great things about St. Jude is you can have a visual reminder of this verse every time you come in and every time you leave. Don't look at me, by the way. Turn around. This is the... Have a look at the stained glass window at the back on the right. There are three women. 
who symbolises, as I can see at the top there, faith, charity, or love, and hope. I always thought the middle one is the poor woman after church with her kids asking to borrow the iPhone. That's not what it is. She's expressing love. Uh, but the woman on the right, what has she got in her left hand? An anchor, right? Thank you. It's pretty obvious. Thank you for the, the obvious question. What? That's this verse. So when you come to church and you feel troubled and insecure and not sure what's going on, or when you leave this church, hopefully a little more secure in what you believe, but anyway, if you, if you are troubled and anxious about family and friends of yourself, you see the anchor and what do you say? My hope is secured in Christ. My hope is secured in Christ. My hope is secured in Christ. He's entered on our behalf. And he's our great high priest. Look to Jesus above all things. Let me pray that we would do that as we wrestle with God's word. Gracious Father, you know and we know the, the, the weightiness of these words. You know our concern for others, for loved uh, family members and friends who we grieve and lament that they have walked away from you and it breaks our heart. Father, help us to indeed take our spiritual maturity seriously, to take uh, our sin and holiness seriously and to bring to you the God who is not unjust, our family and friends. And so we ask in your mercy to restore them and redeem them as you did, Peter. And Father, in all things, may we continue to have Jesus as our anchor, as our hope. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.